Hello and welcome to Matt Chat, where each week I invite an Empire LARPer to come on the channel and talk to me, Matt Pennington, about some aspect of Empire or live role-playing that we're both interested in. Today I'm with Luca, so I'll hand over to Luca and he can explain a little bit about himself and what he's come on the channel to talk about. Hi there, as Matt said, my name's Luca Duray. I've been playing Empire since 2013, since it started. And I, uh, you know, because Matt invited us all to send in some topics that we'd like to talk about, I thought a really interesting one. One of the things I love about the game is that 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 balance that we all are put under by the system about how do we try to achieve our own goals and our own PvP goals against each other, whilst at the same time having to beat the enemy which you know the barbarians outside our borders and the pressure that puts on us to to make compromises you know do you sacrifice you know your own personal ambitions and uh, to to save the empire or can the empire go hang frankly if i don't get this thing because this is all i care about and how that creates just so many great moments of role play between us and as as players but also you know creating internal dilemmas it, it's been one of those things that i've always always found delivers event after event yeah it was a t when you suggested it was a topic i was really interested in and i think it goes right to the heart of the design of empire and to the way that, that the game has been put together and, and we might get into that it depends just where the conversation goes yep but it, it's absolutely crucial to the design of the game the conflict that you're talking about. So I was I was really fascinated. I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. I heard I heard in a recent podcast that you guys did, you were talking about how you're engineering a game to talk to 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 be able to cope with the numbers that you've got because you know other systems you could have, you know, you've only got a you know 30 NPCs going out into the field and you're reliant on the players to interact with each other, which generates the game and it becomes self-sustaining. But I thought when I listened to that, it made me think about how you you manage that with a PvP game because as players, like you said, I think in that podcast, 90 to 5 to 100% of our interactions will be with other players. And it yeah. is a PvP system. And we're hyper, you know, we're competing with each other with rival interests. The game, as I see it anyway, has been engineered to have multiple layers of conflict going on, whether that be in nation, between nations, between imperial bodies, inside imperial bodies, etc. And with so many points of conflict, it would be the easiest thing in the world for us all just to dig our heels and go, nope. No, nope, not gonna, not gonna work with you. Never, never gonna give in because the empire wouldn't work if there wasn't anything to force us to compromise at all and to make us make that hard choice about. Well, I want to do this, but and 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 if I don't, there's no consequences to me not giving in or or compromising. And if none of it, nobody ever compromised, then empire as a believable civilization and a setting just just couldn't work in my mind. Well, that's interesting because I have to say I don't agree, which is great. Oh, uh, right. Okay. a few of these podcasts where I, you know, there's a lot of agreement. And I, I fundamentally disagree with you. And I, I'll give you both a, a game designer's perspective, and then I'll give you what I would consider to be a real-world analogy. Firstly, a game designer's perspective. From my ex long experience, and whenever anybody talks about their long experience in LARP, they're often about to talk bullshit, so I need to be careful here because experience <laughs> is a straitjacket for the mind. But it, it, it influences the way I perceive game design. It's not an argument to authority, but it influences the way I think, obviously because you're influenced by your experience. Mm. The challenge is getting people into conflict when you design a game, it's getting them to stand their ground and not simply compromise on everything, band together and, and all hang together. So in my experience, 
from running games and from designing games, the, the challenge is getting people to stand there up for themselves rather than just to throw it all to one side and cling to the kind of common good and all go together in one direction. So that's my experience. That's that's the starting point of the game design, which is perhaps slightly odds with what you see when you look at the game. I could talk about that. But just to use a real-world analogy, when you say it wouldn't work and the empire wouldn't be real, the yeah. obvious example for me would be to think of left-right politics in the Houses of Parliament. There's astonishingly little cooperation between those two rival parties. But we understand that nobody thinks that is inherently broken. People understand that's the way it is. Now, sometimes there is more cooperation, sometimes there's less. You know, are we becoming more partisan? Are we becoming less? Whatever. But actually, in the real world, states of conflict internally within organisations are quite common at a large scale, I think. No, I think that's interesting because I, I completely agree with you that there's always levels of partisan politics going on in the real world, whether you look in the United States or whether you look in the UK or anywhere else for that matter. And even when you think, you know, we think it's bad today, you know, I mean, I study history. I love history as, as, a, as a hobby. And I, I've been seeing people reporting that, you know, this partisanship that we see today was just as bad as a, a hundred years ago, where I think the the kind of the contemporary comparison between the empire and, and our, our current political environment is slightly different is that for the most part we don't have armies and enemies invading us in the same way that the empire does now and i think when you look at something like pearl harbor using that historical example all the partisanship that was going on back in the united states kind of almost evaporated overnight because there was this you know real external threat and i think that's where the barbarians can apply pressure on forcing players to work together um, rather than always focusing on their rivals across the you know the canvas tent or across the senate floor in the military council wherever it happens to be because when you've got that common enemy it can kind of force you to not focus on each other quite so much yeah abs absolutely I, and i think i mean we, they talk about the rally around the flag effect in real life in politics that, yeah. that you know in the moment there's a war effectively people rally around the leader etc cetera, etc cetera. i i think there are some fascinating historical elements you know if we and i firstly i agree with you i question whether partisanship is on the rise i i accept that it is widely reported in every major political blog and correspondence to be on the increase but i do question it because i think it is the narrative that that is happening and i don't think it is being i think it's being put together on the basis of anecdotal evidence rather than actual credible historical analysis but if we assume for a moment it is true I wonder if the fact that the Western world has not seriously been threatened by a major conflict, no country in the West has been seriously threatened by a major conflict for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Oh, okay, so you can talk about the Cold War. Cold War was obviously a Cold War. But then that only makes that point where the Cold War ends an even sharper delineation. And, and actually, you see a sort of flailing around in Western culture looking for an enemy after the fall of communism and at the end of the Cold War. And is that rise in partisanship that is so widely reported in the last 20 years a consequence of the fact that we have nothing, no external factor causing us to band together? You know, in the words of the old saying, me against my brother against the or whatever that that trite phrase is yep um if we haven't got that 
then maybe partisanship does become an, an ever-increasing problem. You know, once you've not got an external force causing you to band together, then intrinsically politics starts to break you up and do, and drive you apart. And I think, and I think, in empire, when you're when you're in these these events where you're in such an enclosed environment and in touch an, an intense environment for three days, and things, the life cycle of things is so sped up that. You know, people are making decisions very, very quickly, and and because everybody's interactions are with each other's in a in a in a PvP setting, that it would be it would be very, very easy to to forget about uh, you know greater good of the empire because all you're trying to do is get that particular senate seat, or you're trying to push this particular point of virtue through and impose it on whoever it happens to be out there, and why won't they let you do it? And you're just consumed with you know your particular vertical in in you know the, because everybody the game is so big everybody's probably seeing the game through their own particular small window of it and and yes. and that's what they're focused on and therefore you would almost forget about the consequence of it because you're just hell bent on trying to achieve your personal goal and isn't this other thing that we're talking about this external existential threat there's almost no consequence other than that for a lot of people if, if they don't compromise and in some ways people enjoy not compromising because hell it's more game and if there are negative consequences to their character at the end of three days well they get to go home and, and laugh about how great it was and the consequences to them oc are not there i see without a big bad out there that you know if i i mean i'm going to use an example of you know the the, the synod where People push points of virtue. I think there was the whole uh, thing last year about how they could impact on each nation's national tradition and, and making it harder for them to work with each other. I think we've had that come up a couple of times over the years in the game. Well, you know, you're pushing your point of virtue, but actually that has significant impacts on the Empire's ability to prosecute wars. Yeah. And it's forcing those players to think about you know challenging them to think about how how much do i care about this do i care about this point of principle even though it may cost a territory or two or you know put us in a weaker position against the barbarians we're fighting i mean i'm genuinely fascinated is your view of the game that absent that external enemy the 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 default position of characters coming into the political system would be to not compromise and to and get to embrace conflict i think so i i my experience over the last seven years has very much been that uh, you know you you will always have factions yes so people do band together people have nations or you know, spires or, or citadels or chapters or whatever it happens to be houses inside a nation have banded together and worked together sometimes against other groups in other nations sometimes against groups in their own nation to push their own particular point of view or to control certain parts of you know certain bits of power and, and levers of power inside that particular nation or or in, or in conclave for example because that's what they're trying to achieve then that's you know the 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 people they're competing for those particular levers of power are the the enemy are their rivals now you're not going to murder them in the street because you know that's what gets you in front of the militia but those are your rivals and if there isn't anything to force you to compromise if there isn't a consequence of you digging your heels in and 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 never compromising then things start to have the potential to break down not every decision you're going to make is going to have empire breaking consequences but there's a cumulative effect 
of well you know the boss people are you know are, are charging a you know a huge amount of money for 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 materials to the senate which then impacts what we can afford which means we can't prosecute wars and then eventually that results in us not being able to fight our wars so well i mean i'm using a a pretty crude example there but what a person down at the bottom of the chain decides to sell their wains for consistently or creates a cartel to sell their wains for consistently can have an effect five or six rungs further down the ladder that can impact things in ways you just cannot anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I mean, obviously the key here is I've never played Empire. So I can't talk about what the playing experience of Empire is. I've literally no idea of any kind at all what it is. It's good fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I, I mean, certainly one. Yeah, that's what you aim to deliver. But I know from my experience, I once went, and I'll just as a kind of personal experience, I went, I went to a live role-playing event. It was a kind of post-apocalyptic event, uh, a classic, what I would call a classic post-apocalyptic event, first event in a, a new system. We turn up in a sort of biggish group. There are other groups. Nobody really knows each other before the game, but you all know each other in your group and everyone in you. So it's kind of rival group tensions. It's a PvP game. It's, you know, so forth. And I remember speaking to a guy who was in charge of a big group camp near us after the first event. And he said, and he, he said to me, you know, as soon as I saw your group and that other big group on the other side, the first thing I thought was I should get an alliance with those two. Mm. And I thought, gosh, because my first thought was, how can I bring myself into conflict with this large group over here? And his first thought was, how can I ensure there isn't any conflict between me and these two large groups? Yeah. And I find that latter attitude is more common in games that I play, that initially people are looking for support, they're looking for friends, they're looking for allies, and they'll compromise personal goals to get that. And that's been my experience. I accept that happens in Empire. But because it's such a big game now that when you come, I mean, it's one of those, everybody says, you know, it's, it's, it, you can all come as individuals, you can come as uh, individuals, mm. but actually it's a game that actually works best if you're as part of a group. That's why we have things like carters and houses, et cetera. Yeah. But with two and a thousand, 2000 plus players on the field now, yes, you come as five or 10 people, you're still going to feel pretty small so your first yeah. reaction is going to be right well who are out there that i can make friends with and then i can tap into what's going on that they may be aware of in terms of plot or agendas or connections so your first point of i i suspect in a lot of cases isn't going to be how can i kick over that hornet's nest and how can i take their stuff or get that hat it's going to be who can I work with and who which alliances can I build up to enable me to kick over that hornet's nest yeah. or take that hat? Because it's such a big game. Without a network of alliances and support, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, totally. And I think, but I suspect there's another factor as well, or I hope there is. Empire, I think, is quite unusual in that the game has power. You, you can get titles and titles give you the ability to do things. And actually, that's quite unusual. That's not that common in live role playing games, even big fest games. Most of the titles and positions you can gain, all of the power that comes from it is just additional influence. Whereas, yeah. in, you know, if you're the general of an army, you can literally go and invade a neighboring imperial nation. You'll get arrested at the next event, but you can <laughs> submit those orders just fine. You know, PD will be like, yep, not a problem. <laughs> you, you total control over that, that thing. 
The point is... You realise you've given people a challenge now, right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the point is, I think, that, that the system probably rewards people who don't compromise. And what, so yeah. what I mean by that, in the same way that real life does, um, if you... If you're going to be a perfect compromiser, if you're going to be totally agreeable and very relaxed and very charming and just do whatever everyone around you wants, you're not going to advance your own agendas because periodically they'll come into conflict with other people. And if that person is charming and friendly and doesn't compromise and goes, no, 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 I want this position, you should stand aside. You're going to stand aside, they're going to get the position, and then they've got the power and you haven't. Yep. Um, so I suspect there's an element of the game that actually simply rewards people who don't compromise in exactly the way real life does. Yeah, and that's that's exactly my point, which is why I'm saying that 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 hard choice that you're make you're forced to make, which is I really want to achieve X, whether that be get that position or push my agenda, and it's not a really a hard choice if there's no consequence of you um, not compromising. Yes, you know, it's that's why I think. So frequently, there's that whole debate of, you know, are we here for the, you know, are we here for the empire? There's been over the years, there's been you know treaties. I mean, look at what Wintermark have had to do over the years for the good of the empire. You know, giving up a territory, you know, voluntarily yep. for the imperial orcs, and 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 giving up part of a territory for the peace treaty with the Thule. You know, those are things that have been done in the name of the empire. Now, whether you think that was been worth it is a completely icy opinion to take, and any opinion on the scale of amazing to bloody awful decision are perfectly valid. But yeah. those are our icy decisions that have been taken, and it generates consistently, in my opinion, some of the best role play moments in the game. And and I think one of the the best decisions I made when I first joined the game back in 2013 with my first character was thinking about the sorts of things that would I'd be willing as a character to throw the empire to the wolves if I didn't get X. Yep. And and so I was playing I was playing a, a Draugir in in the High Guard. Um, and as you can imagine, growing up as a Draugr in Highguard was a thoroughly enjoyable experience. And he had been badly treated. He got thrown out from his chapter that he grew up in because he was a Draugr and they didn't want one of those around. And he got taken in by his chapter and raised in Rykos. And that led him to believe basically, well, look, if I can't have Rykos, the Empire can go hang because it's the only people who've ever actually had any interest in me whatsoever. So, and then you ask yourself, well, why does that matter? Well, because you know, everybody else treated me incredibly badly because I was a drag gear. And then suddenly you're, you hate people all because you're starting to ask yourself questions. You hate people who don't like lineage, which then can have role-playing consequences you never anticipated when something happens in front of you and it just triggers that innate stuff that you've built into your background. So by having an opinion, coming into the game with an opinion or trying to form an opinion early doors, that is, I will not compromise on X can generate some of the best role play moments and that's where again i come back to this what would you be willing to throw the empire to the wolves for or, or vice versa i will not give up uh, you know i will i will I, the empire comes first in all things except for and and suddenly role play can just happen even two or three years down the line in ways you'd never anticipated. Yeah, that makes... When I think back on some of my own experiences in other games, the moments that 
that really had been epic moments have often been moments where I had simply refused to compromise. Whatever was the prevailing narrative, I went, no, I'm going in a different direction. Mm. And, and that, the conflict and the passion and the drama that develops when you do that is incredible. It, and yeah, so then the, the interesting question is why don't more people embrace it in live role-playing games? And then we could get into that. And I think I've talked about that actually in one of the other podcasts. There are really interesting reasons, I think, for it. Embrace what? Just so I'm clear. Embrace on. the conflict. Why ah. don't people embrace the conflict just for the joy of the drama? It's an interesting one, that, because I think there's, I think there's, you've got to remember that everybody's been role playing for different levels and periods of time. I mean, you've said you're an old role player. I've, I still feel like a novice to this, relatively <laughs> speaking. I mean, I've been playing Empire for seven years, but that was the first fest I'd ever done. I'd right, only right. ever done one LARP before that for two or three years in a field. I'd done a local system at university before that, but I'd never played anything on the scale of Empire before. And takes a little while to get a sense of as a fairly new player i found of what you can how you can handle situations and how to feel comfortable challenging people and digging your heels in and and even to this day i think last year i've had one or two run-ins in character with my current Urzni character in the nation and outside the nation i think it's fair to say and having taken the plunge with the conflict and 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 digging your heels in and having those moments of conflict after an event when you go oc one of the best bits is when somebody comes up to you and said, that was amazing. Thank you so much. And and I, I suppose one of the things maybe I would encourage people who aren't too sure about it is to just try it and then speak to the people afterwards that you've had those moments with and, and oh, see yeah. if you if you feel comfortable doing it. Because I guarantee you, if you've had fun, odds are they've probably had fun too. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really interesting that you, you've talked about almost your lack of experience of certainly large-scale Fest LRP uh, before you came into Empire. And I you know, in, a, in an optimistic way, I wonder if getting in lots of new players is really helping us because they're almost not coming into the game with bad habits. I remember now talking in one of my other podcasts, with, we talked about the fact that it's probably the villain one with, with Pell that, that we did, where the default in a lot of role-playing games is a small party of adventurers and they're all going to mm. stand and band together and it, and it is them against a common adversary. So the default mindset for some people when they approach a live role-playing game is just to assume that, that everybody's on the same side. And actually, you can say it's a PvP game, so you're blue in the face. But if those habits are utterly ingrained, then sometimes they're not that easy to shift. No, they're not. But I think what you've now got with Empire is that there is... Uh, an in-game history there so anybody new coming in um will be told by other people in their nation about this horrific thing that was done by so and so in the in the event of such and such and yeah. we will never forget or forgive and you're almost you know there there is this in character uh, uh history that people in a nation are are introduced to and 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 are encouraged to live and breathe which fosters more animosity potentially more rivalries a bit of bitterness i mean you know we wrote you know when we came in we all read the 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 rivalries that existed so between the marches and and dawn and they're there and they are role played but in a way nothing is quite those aren't quite as real as something that was done in character in your face three seasons ago or you know three years ago 
Absolutely. I, I'm a, a huge believer in this effect. I used to, years ago, I used to write games and be like, oh, well, these people are in conflict with these people and these people are in conflict. You can, in my opinion, you can write a LARP setting and say, this nation has been at war with this nation for a thousand years and they loathe and hate <laughs> each other on site. And that will not have the same impact on the game as if I spill your pint in the bar <laughs> on Friday night. It just won't. And it's easy yeah. to say, well, that's bad role playing. But actually, I would argue the opposite. To me, live role-playing is the thing that happens when I am live and in the character. Ultimately, the only stuff that is real in a live role-playing game is the stuff that happens when I'm live and I'm in the character. The thousand years of history of conflict between my people and your people, that never happened. Somebody just wrote that down on a piece of paper. None of us have lived that. But you actually spilled my pint. You actually <laughs> spilled my actual pint in the actual pub on Friday night. And that was real. That was real. I was there. You were there. It happened. And and so it, it has power. It has power in a way that the background conflict never does. Yeah, but if you multiply that by then uh, somebody's somebody's background, somebody's personal background or a group's personal background being utterly thwarted by another nation or a, or a, or a virtue assembly or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, years of work just go up in smoke. You're not going to forget that. No. You're, you're just not. And, or, you know, and, and a nation feeling betrayed by another nation or, you know, a, a heresy being perpetrated or something like that. You're, you're as a, as a, uh, role-playing community you're going to be talking about that in character over your drinks or in your tents you know event after event and wanting to figure out how you fix that and all the rest of it so it's not just the spilling of the pint in those cases it's the that's years of work that they've just utterly destroyed for me and 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 have prevented us from achieving whatever the heck we were trying to achieve and that's going to fester which is great yeah yeah, I mean, I'm being facile by talking about spilling pints, but I, I think it is, as you say, it, the history basically creates, because it happens and it actually happens to characters and it's real and it takes place in the world, it feels real to you. It, you felt those emotions and you remember how those emotions felt and, and that creates a power and an impact that that, that story doesn't intrinsically by itself the setting doesn't intrinsically by itself exactly and this is i suppose coming bring it back to the original thing we were talking about with all of these potential ways that conflict can happen you need you know something to for once you've got these rivalries ingrained over seven years of game passed down from group to group and players to players and characters to characters players to players characters to characters you need something to force people to go yeah, I hate you because you did this to us and we'll never forget it. But I, and I really want to thwart what you're doing and mess up your plans. But I know if I do, well, we could lose an entire nation. And at that point, as a character, you're really put into that hard choice point of going, am I willing to do that? Yeah. And that's just fabulous. Because then if you do it, you'll feel satisfied and all the rest of it. But then there's going to be consequences for you for doing that because there's guaranteed to be people who will never forgive you for that. And so it continues. But if you didn't have that external threat, 
then it would just be really easy just to go, yeah, I hate them, so no. And you almost you lose that 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 role play moment there that you could have of making that decision. I think the, from my perspective as the game designer, I mean, there's a couple of things that are interesting here. One is that when we originally started to work on the con- concept of the barbarians that were threatening the empire, previously when we designed games, we didn't put any external enemy in because we were concerned it would simply create too strong an impulse for everyone to unify and unite, and we would lose that. Piece. EVP politics, which we felt was essential to creating a large fest game. And with Empire, we felt much more confident because I was firmly of the conviction that we could get the, the level correct. And I'll come to what I mean by that, that in a minute, that, that effectively there would be an external threat, but it wouldn't be so powerful it wouldn't be so overwhelming that everyone would simply have to throw everything aside and indeed one of the early design concepts was that actually fighting the barbarians and successfully triumphing against the barbarians would just be another way to play the pvp politics the the example a friend of mine yo has used is if you look at the kind of Rome example, when Rome is surrounded by barbarians and different generals are leading their armies off against the barbarians, they're doing it so that they can win popular applause and, and plaudits at home. They're not actually doing it to save Rome. They're, they're doing it to say, hey, I'm the best general. I should be Caesar. And we kind of had a little bit of that in mind. But, but crucially... I think a lot of this comes down to the level of the external threat. It's one of my arguments why I don't like Cthulhu, uh, Lovecraft as a setting, because in the Lovecraftian setting, the the external enemy, the threat, is cosmic, it is all-consuming, and it threatens all of existence. Any PvP politics in the face of a threat that is all-consuming, cannot be negotiated with, and threatens all of existence with complete annihilation is madness. Never mind the the cultists working for the Cthulhu entities. If you're still having your petty rivalries while Cthulhu is manifesting at the other side of the room, you're the mad one. And the thing. Yeah, that's no, what Sandlos is about. Yeah, there's no credible, there's no credible politics in in my mind that I can work through. And I get that lots of people run really successful Cthulhu games. It's why I don't, because I can't get my headspace around how that even works. Mm. For us, the key was the balance of threats externally. And I think you can see that with the way the Empire works and the way it operates. It is threatened by the barbarians, but it's often in situations where it has the upper hand, where, you know, one or more barbarian nations is on the back foot. It's not a classic role-playing situation where we're all threatened by the evil necromancer and his army is going to wipe everybody out. And, you know, the classic, if you look at the hero's journey, which a lot of fantasy live role-playing draws from, the hero is on a journey against an overwhelming threat. You know, that Luke Skywalker must defeat the Empire or they will conquer the whole universe, a galaxy, and nothing will stop them. Um, That wouldn't fly in Empire. There would be half a dozen, you know, the Empire equivalent is half a dozen different empires all fighting against the galactic republic and and everyone arguing about where they should be concentrating their firepower but i think you know i I completely see your point there and i i i completely agree with you i think where you have the challenge sometimes is where players experience of that external threat is that there we almost can't win and that has come up from time to time i've i've had conversation with players feeling well the empire's got only 18 months left to live it's it's on the verge of collapse etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that is in my perception of it anyway 
this is just my opinion, but my perception of that is this the the, the a consequence of us, you know, as players being put in a position where we have to do things we don't like and you feel like you're losing because you know you 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 have to give ground and you have to you have to give give ground to to that external threat. And we're not, as uh, one of the, the the leaders of 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 the empire, trying to to organise a coordinated response. Because you've got twenty to thirty generals, you've got ten nations, all with their own agendas and they're all, all their own opinions. And getting around to see them all is almost impossible. So trying to organise a coordinated imperial response, a joined up strategy, is so very very difficult so it's very easy when you are forced to make compromises and you read the winds of war and certain people certain armies have had a really bad day and other ones have had a very very good one or in some cases everybody's had a really good one or someone's had a really bad one there is this reaction to think everything's great or or we're doomed and that's a consequence of people not being able to just dig in and being forced to make that compromise choice. And that can really show, well, I can't achieve this and I don't see how we're going to overcome that. And I think the empire's got, you know, two years two years left to live before they're wandering through, you know, Bastion and, and Cassinea yeah. and onto Sarvos. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember... I can certainly remember when that that kind of line about oh the empire's only got a couple of years left to live and then the barbarians are just going to be knocking at the doors of Andal first appeared in my um, kind of radar and it, it's quite a it's really unnerving as a game organizer because obviously for us the design of the empire is that it's in a fraught situation but it's not it's not an existential threat it's not you know isn't built from the outset to be an existential threat. And obviously, we don't know what's happening in the field, but we do know what's happening to all the little piles of army counters yeah. on the board map. So with the best will in the world, we that is an area of the game we probably know better than the players. Mm. Probably, prob not certainly, but probably. Um, so we look at it and we'll be like, well, it's just not true. It's, it's just not factually correct. And then that's great. You go, okay, we've designed the game around, but actually... The facts are irrelevant because in a LARP game, truth is what everybody believes. Yes. yes. And so if everybody believes the Empire's only got two years to learn and then starts acting like the Empire's only, then that has a very profound effect on the way the game plays and arguably would have been to the detriment of the game. Well, yeah, absolutely. But it also makes people act desperate. And, mm. and, and you've got to be careful, I think, here in terms of are people saying that as an icy tactic to try, you know, are people going around saying, oh my God, we've only got two years left to live. We need to, you know, if we don't do this, whatever this happens to be, we're stuffed as a way of putting pressure on people to further their own political agenda. Yeah. And if I was playing Empire, I would categorically be saying to people, I've run the maths and the only way that the Empire can triumph and survive and endure and avoid destruction is if you compromise on the things you want to do yes. and you do the things I want to do. Obviously, I would say that in a, in a much less transparent and hopefully more convincing way. But that is what I would be saying. I would be saying to you, the good of the empire requires you to do what I want. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, 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 yeah. And I'm pretty certain that's happened more than a dozen times. <laughs> Which is, I hope so. Is it I pretty, hope so. No, I'm I'm 99 sure it's happened because again, it is about that pressure point, which is mm. why I love the game design, which is why I wanted to discuss this because in so many different ways that we've discussed now, it it allows you know the the the, the rivalries and the, the 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 agendas and the personal character development to just deliver time and time again that I think 
if there wasn't that consequence, that potent, whether you know real or perceived, then you know there would be so much. The role play that was out there would be be so less rich and so less yeah. engaging and fun. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think again, go right back to the design concepts of Empire. A phrase or a word that I coined actually uh, for Empire, and that we then basically didn't used in all of our design documents and in some of our consultation documents, and then never used again, was reflection. The idea that the actions of the players must be reflected in changes to the world. If you move your army here and conquer this territory, that must be reflected in the world itself. And you must be able to perceive and experience the changes that that creates in the world. Because without reflection, it all becomes shadow play. There's no consequences and it's all stripped of meaning. And I think that is one of the great strengths of Empire. And it's it's ultimately, it's what the downtime system is for. Because as I said earlier, none of the stuff that happens outside the event is real. It's it's yeah. just words. It's, I mean, the, I don't know how many words Raph writes for the Winds of War, 30,000, 40,000, whatever. It's a huge amount of words, all of them. But it's just words. But its purpose is to reflect the things that the players have done. And essentially, I say, yes, the world has changed. You have done X, you have done Y. Your actions had these consequences. Now you must, you know, now there are new decisions, new choices. Again, which is what forces players to make those choices, mm. which is why they dig their heels in and you get that conflict or you, you know, you've, force players to 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 give ground and, and what have you because if there was like you say if there was no consequence to that player driven action then well let's just go and have a pint down the pub and, and go and beat people up in the morning yes it's also it's interesting as well because and i've forgotten this now but but being charitable is often the easiest most effective option in a world without consequences imagine imagine you're walking down your high street and there are people begging um and you think well i should really give some money perhaps to one of these people you know they're homeless whatever now imagine you have literally limitless money in your pocket you literally have a magic machine that for giving money away to people is completely limitless how much money are you going to give to those beggars that you walk past probably quite a lot when we have limitless money we could all be quite generous in that situation but in the real world money is never limitless Every pound you give to someone has a consequence because it's a pound you don't have. It's one of the reasons I love economics in my LARP games because mm. economics is is just consequences in a, in a numbers form. It's just putting quantitative figures onto consequences. If I give you a pound, you have a pound, and I do not have a pound. That is a consequence of my action. But it's only a consequence if money is real, if these things are real, if these things are limited, if they have ongoing effects, if they have meaning and, and weight. I think I think the boss often when especially these days because there's you know, economic pressures out there at the moment in the game. It's one of the narratives that certainly I've I've heard people talking about. I think the boss is one of those areas that actually get quite a lot of pressure put on them from time to time because you know the empire you know, is is fighting all these enemies and we've got you know requirements to do emergency resupply or to build a new army or, or you know upgrade an army whatever it happens to be and these people over you know who own the boss as they sometimes are perceived are going well hang on they could save lives they could change the course of the empire but they're not and they have the potential to do that if they just you know use those funds but they can't because they want their profit yep 
And of course, you know, that's perfectly valid. In fact, there's an entire virtue written there to put, to encourage them not to just give their money away charitably to support the empire. But they are often, I think, sometimes given a very tough deal because they're accused of gouging um, the, the <laughs> Senate to to make their profit. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the game is set up actually to give them quite a lot of legal protections. They've probably got more legal protections than anybody else in the game. And that was because we sensed from the outset that if we didn't give them those legal protections, they would just have all their money stripped off them in a nanosecond. It would just be, it would be a Senate motion in 20 minutes. Let's just nationalise all the bourse resources and put all those assets at the disposal of the Senate. And of course, what would happen is that huge amounts of the economics of the game would disappear. A lot of the consequences uh, would disappear. You talk there about the fact that these people could make significant changes to the world and to this, the you know, into the course of the war and so forth. But actually, often those characters do make significant choices. I, the one I think I can think of is Achilles, who was one of the big sort of wealthy players in Urizen a while back. He's dead now, but he was making yes. significant changes by applying his wealth. But he was doing it in places where he chose, not places where other people chose. And of course, he can only have those choices because his wealth is limited. It, it's all, it, it's not just your character is rich and has as much money as he needs, which might be what my character sheet would say in a very simple non-economic game it might you know i might get a pre-written character just because yeah your character's really rich you, you don't need to worry about money even the rich people what i'm saying is even the rich people in empire still have to worry about money if they didn't they just have none very yes. very quickly yeah you yeah, know it's, it's it's an incredibly easy game in which to spend enormous amounts of money yes. very very quickly and if you don't have a sustainable model you're gonna you're gonna end up asking people for loans yes absolutely you know it. it's interesting again to look at a real world analogy i was just thinking of bloomberg uh who is running for, for president <laughs> yes. you know, he's, no he's running for the democratic nomination for president in the states uh yes. and he is i don't know he's, he's a billionaire he's one of the richest people on the planet and he's literally uh refusing to take any donations of any kind to, to his campaign because he's funding the whole thing himself so effectively he's using his money to try and change the direction of his country. So he's spending his own money where he could actually just be saying, hey, why doesn't anybody else give me their money to, to try and change the direction of the nation, which is really interesting. An interesting contrast with Trump, who is obviously also quite wealthy, but actually, according to all the analysis, spent very, very, very little of his own money on his presidential campaign. He actually raised, you know, A, he spent far less than Clinton, and B, he raised the money he spent by donations. He, he didn't, didn't cash in his personal fortune. Um, and so he, he, just difference of consequences, you know, in, in, the, in, in the real world. I mean, I, I think what's going on in terms of the politics that you see in the United States, I think is really interesting in comparison to what I see going in the UK and just how different it is, but also then how that translates through to, to empire. Because I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm really interested in politics, both on this side of the Atlantic and the other. And what I see the difference is I see empires got more in common with the United States because there they're talking about principles and they're talking about things far more in the abstract in terms of morality and the way one should behave and the Constitution. Whereas in the UK, those sorts of 
big broad ideas aren't aren't covered quite so much maybe i'm just forgetting what we used to do before we talked about brexit but (laughs) no i mean i think it's interesting actually i hadn't really thought about it but if you were to compare the empire's political model with america or britain the obvious comparison is actually with america much more i think than it is with britain you know the throne is like a presidential figure the you we don't quite have a, a congress and a senate but we do have a senate and a synod and both houses have different roles and a different power base and a different power dynamic and it's federal you could argue as well because the nations and the states have their own identity nations and senators represent their nations yes absolutely of course effectively they're all locally elected yes so yeah i think there's a strong similarity You know, that if you read about American politics, particularly, I think, in the Senate, there's a real, and actually in the Congress as well, no, I don't take that back, there's a real pork barrel spending is the thing they talk about, where basically bills are passed by buying people's votes, by promising them this development or that Mm -hmm. development for their their Senate, for their state or for their district. Um, And and I, I guess that must happen in British politics to an extent, but it feels like in British politics, it is much more party powered. So in effect, in the Labour Party and in the Tory Party, you have to do what the whips tell you, because otherwise you will never progress up the pole of, and you won't get into the cabinet or the shadow cabinet, you won't get an, a secretary and undersecretary position. So effectively, the machine controls people's votes and even to some extent whether you can stand or not in that party whereas in america that it, that those choices are much much more devolved and people are actually more closely attached to the district or the state that elects them i these my outsider perspective yeah. i don't know how you'd view- i completely agree with you i think it's actually really interesting um over the years when i've been playing the game to see how um certain nations where there's so I came from Highgard uh, three and a half years ago. I was playing in Highgard, and there they, it's quite a different setup because there it's the National Assembly that votes for the senators, and that's the entire nation's uh, priests get to vote. So there is no there is no Cassinea voting block or, or priests of Cassinea and Rikos, etc. It's every, all the priests gets to vote. But there it's not you vote for somebody; it's you you vote against the you put votes against the person you trust the least to stop them being able to become a senator, and it's the person who gets the yeah. least votes wins. Interesting different senatorial election dynamic to what I've experienced in in Urizen, where it's actually the 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 ritualists of a territory vote for the senator of their territory it means that you've got a a much more regional political ecosystem than you do a, right. a, a national yes one. yeah yeah it's one of the big challenges I think is that that regionality versus nationality just to go back to what I was saying earlier I was just thinking of an example there was a great article by a Guardian journalist Dita Chakrabarti I'll probably pronounce that wrong but he was talking about the link between MPs and their place that elects them, the, uh, what do we call it in our parliament? The the seat, the constituency. Uh, and the example he used in the article was David Miliband, who was famously parachuted into South Shields. He was one of Tony Blair's kind of henchmen, and they, parach- they, li- they obviously didn't literally parachute him into South Shields. But the joke in the Labour Party was he couldn't even find South Shields on a map. You didn't even know where this place was that he was the MP for. I get the impression that couldn't happen in American politics. There is, I think it must happen to a degree, but not to that level. And it, and it certainly couldn't happen in empire. There, there is, 
there there is absolutely no way not not unless not unless that person who's parachuted in has got you know 50 other people in his spire or or, or carter or whatever it happens to be with votes but no there's if you're an outsider you're, you're not going to be able to to do that in this game you've got to thankfully role play Yes, and also I think it's the organisation. There's there's no party to parachute you in. There's nobody controlling those seats. You, you know, the example isn't the same when you talk about fifty people backing you because what that is is that's a that's a that's a coup. That's me and my fifty friends are going to come in and just throw our weight around, which is not the same as this some sort of party or organisation going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just that's a tame seat. We'll give that to. Bob or Dave or whatever or Jane. But interestingly, and this is actually quite topical given what's going on in Empire at the minute, the only time in the seven years I've been playing where I've actually seen what's come close to cross-national party was the last throne election. Right. Because then you had a number of different candidates standing with backers in Senate, uh, senators backing them from multiple different nations. And they were then bandying together and working together to, to, to try to get their chosen candidate elected. So it became quite interesting how that was the closest I've seen to, to almost like a party system rallying around their candidate for the throne. And I think one of the things I'm really looking forward to seeing this year is is how that develops you know what four or five years on from the last time we went through you know people putting their hats in the ring to to to, to be on the throne yeah that's really interesting i think because i've as an outsider i've watched empire and i've wondered about the emergence or non-emergence of political parties and i think part of the issue in empire is it doesn't really support political ideologies in the way that real life does we don't appear to have you know conservatives who want to spend more or spend less and and, and liberal european liberals who want to spend more progressives maybe i don't know whatever labels you want to put on them but if I wanted to put my massively cynical head on for a minute, and I'm not saying this is how I think, but I'm just saying this is an interesting way to look at it. If I was to look at British or American politics and go, yeah, 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 but all of that, all of the political position of the conservatives, the right wing and the left wing, have no actual theoretical basis. They're just an accumulated set of positions that they've gained over time uh, that have basically become the party's position just because we're in opposition to the other people and they think this so we think the opposite of that if you're going to take that incredibly cynical position then actually that is absolutely equivalent to a situation where half a dozen nations are going yeah we're with this person for candidate and the other nations are going yeah we're with this person for candidate well there's there's one other time there's one other thing now actually thinking about it when we just use that example uh, you need something for people to rally around and be wanting to push as a group and you need something that x multiple nations or multiple bodies, whether it be conclaves in it or whatever. And the only other time I think that's come close to creating kind of semi-solid factions within the game, there was the massive debate a few years ago between the war in the East against the Druze and the war in the West against the Jotun. That's when you saw factions, nations and senators and, and generals realising that if we want to get Leathaven back or, or the Mornwald back or the Barons back or wherever it happens to be, you need to have people supporting your cause and we've got common interests here so let's work together so there was a point where actually a few years ago i did see you know factionalism across nations starting to to to, to, to almost semi-solidify for about a year and i think wow. that as the war evolved that kind of the urgency around that kind of broke down but it was it was heading that way at one point which was quite interesting to see 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. In fact, thinking about it, I think I remember somebody telling some terms to me, like the Brown factions or something, which was Navarre. The Brown Alliance. The Brown Alliance. There you go. Yes. Which is just another name for the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or the Labour Party or the SNP or what. You know, it's, it's actually, it's just another way of saying we've got a political affiliation. We, we people are allied. But, but but again, it was it was this common shared goal to try to achieve this this objective against a, a common threat that was the barbarians and all the rest of it out there that forced players into that decision and to take these rival stances against each other. Which which again coming which is why I, I, I keep coming back to this of this part of the game design because it, it really forces players as individuals or as nations or as you know, organizations above nations that when they work together to take positions and push agendas because it applies pressure that without which there would be no need to do it. Yeah, no, and I totally agree. I mean, I think just again to draw that to draw that argument that the Brown Alliance is exactly like a political party in the real world. You might somebody listening might not be convinced by my idea that you could strip all the ideology away from a political party and just claim it's red and blue, it's left and right, it's up or down. But if them and us them and us but actually if you study any american political history the easy the modern view of american politics is that the democratic party are the party supported by black uh, americans because they are sort of supporting black american rights etc etc but if you go back a hundred years or x years that position was completely reversed. Democrats were the ones absolutely in opposition to black rights and black getting the vote. And it was Republicans who were forcing that issue. And that... Lincoln, Lincoln was a Republican. Yeah. So you go, oh, so the modern political position was completely the opposite way around 100 years ago. <laughs> and, and that's kind of my argument for the fact that actually politics is simply people coming together to achieve a set of goals that in any given moment they think yeah we're all we in this room all agree we should do x and then what you do is you put a label on that and you go we're the x party we're the brown alliance we're the republican party we're the party of lincoln we're, 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 whatever the name is the freedom caucus the freedom caucus you create an identity and you go out there and you use your identity to drive your agenda and then people imagine that the identity is irrevocably linked to the agenda and it often is because it is simply difficult to change the, to separate those two but as the american historical example shows it's not it's not irreconcilable these things are not as set in stone as they always appear at the time okay thanks well i think we'll probably draw it to an end there it's been a really fascinating discussion uh, I really enjoyed chatting to you and I hope everyone's enjoyed listening. Thanks very much. It's been really good fun. And thanks for opening us up the opportunity for us all to make suggestions. It's been really, really good fun. Yeah, no problem. And hopefully if if, if more than five people listen, I might do some <laughs> more of these. Maybe have you back on in the future. We can uh, <laughs> d- just chat about our shared interest in American politics. Oh God, poor people. Thanks to my guest, Luca DeRay. And thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll try and get another one of these up soon. Thank you.